0: Hello, and welcome to the Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm your host, Moeed Amin. The goal of this show is to help sales professionals primarily, but you don't have to be a sales professional at all. Really, it's anyone where persuasion and moving people is a critical part of your success. So we will cover some of the science-based elements and we cover the bigger questions around sales, not just the regular sales tactics. Uh, that people are always asking about, but what it takes to become successful. Success is more about what success is not just about the skills or the knowledge you acquire. It's also about the person you become. So we'll be covering things like human behavior, uh, body language, functional medicine. We even had an expert on functional medicine coming on um, and various other aspects that will contribute to success like personal brand development. And actually one of the things that I have been hearing about from the community a lot more is you know what does it take to build high performance sales teams and specifically what are the things that we should be teaching sales people to value more than anything else that will help them develop into incredible sales professionals with incredible amounts of success and that's why i'm delighted to have our next guest on the show today so our guest has been in the sales profession for uh just over 26 years and 22 Of those years has been in Martech, and in that in those twenty six years, you know he's worked in uh, recruitment companies, credit agencies like Experian, uh, Martech firms, and enterprise software. In fact, he was the Emir head of marketing for cloud services at Oracle for over six years, and in that time he spearheaded a radically different approach. In fact, this approach was so successful that he quadrupled their average order value within just twelve months. So what was this approach? Well, turns out what he did was actually change their sales approach to become more biocentric. So who would have thought being more biocentric would mean more sales, right? I'm keen to dig that in, uh, dig into that a bit more with him. So now he's on a new journey, and he's almost, almost kind of two years ago, he founded Supira where he helps Martech firms and companies solve their talent, pipeline, and sales problems. So please help me welcome someone who's also a father of nine six of which are miniature dachshunds uh Mr Alex Abbott Alex
1: welcome to the show hi good to be here you 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 miss one just one point at the end there so two of the six uh dachshunds are uh pups of two of our originals so I'm essentially a grandfather uh, oh, as wow. well as 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 well as my one of my sons having a little girl, so to her I'm grandpops or popsy. Uh, well, that well you've just added two
0: more, so that's incredible. <laughs> so yeah. so, that, so to have that many, and how do you look after? How do you look after them? How do you find the time? Because that that's a that's a big responsibility, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's busy in our household, you could say. <laughs> do you delegate
0: that responsibility a lot, or do you do you still
1: take it on? I so, have a I have a wonderful wife who does a lot of uh, the uh, you know looking after the the dogs and my grandchildren.
0: Oh wow! Okay, well, she sounds like she deserves a medal. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that sounds great. I'm always su- not not surprised, but I'm always intrigued by how people manage both their professional and personal time because you know people think they should be separated, but actually, you know one can bleed into the other particularly you know mindsets right so if yeah. things are affecting you in work they can affect you in the personal life and and vice versa and i know i know most people are going to expect me to ask sales related questions straight away but but i really wanted to touch on this point because of the sheer volume of people that are involved in your life how do you how do you approach you know the the management between personal and professional you know do you see things bleeding into the other how, how do you kind of not allow one to negatively affect the other
1: yeah that's a great question where do i start so years ago i used to put my career before family it t- it took me many years to realize that that family was uh, actually far more important than than my career um but what um what my family's allowed me to <laughs> To do uh I, I should say my wife has allowed me to do is focus 100 on my career and so um you you know this more than more than anyone i'm i'm sure you know do, doing what we do and being successful in sales is not nine to five uh, it, quite often it's it's you know 60 plus hours a week and working weekends and working holidays i've learned to balance that but I think in order to be successful, you have to go through that uh, yourself, and you need a very supporting partner and family to enable that. It sounds
0: like what you're describing is your supporting family and partner enables you to have that mind share, that kind of headspace. It's not just about work. I mean, like this is what I found personally. It's not about just the hours that you spend doing the work. It's actually almost that kind of freedom in terms of mind space and mind share, and kind of quieting the noise of those other responsibilities and freeing up that space in order for you to focus and and be more creative and to think differently and to have different perspectives about what it is that you do and the value that you bring
1: yeah mm. it, even even the little things like um you know we'll, we'll get up at 6 7 in the morning to uh to take care of the dogs they need feeding they need to go out um but i have about an hour of a time between sort of eight and nine, where I start writing my articles and blog posts. Mm. And you know, my wife recognizes that. So immediately she'll just carry on doing what needs to be done and it leaves me to 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 do what uh you know what I'm doing.
0: The eight or nine, that's intriguing. So so why eight or nine? Why not later in the day? Why not in the middle of the day to do those blog posts and articles?
1: I find I'm most productive then. So uh I'm I'm I'd say I'm more of a morning person. So when it comes to my brain being most active um, and thinking clearer or even exercise, you know, I'm better at doing that in the morning. Prefer to do that.
0: So what do you advise salespeople to focus their time on in the in the morning or when they are most alert, most awake, most most active? Um, is that something you worked on with your with your teams when when you worked
1: with them in the past You know, what What's your advice there? I think everybody is, you know, their own individual. So um, you've got to find your rhythm. So for me, that works. But you know, many, many people I've worked with um, over the years have, you know, have their own times of day where they're most productive. Some people that's in the evening or late into the evening. Um, but for me, Uh, It's the morning and I would encourage anyone within my team or anyone I work with to find uh, what works best for them so they can balance their time, balance their energy to be as productive as possible.
0: And one of the things that I've been discussing, it's interesting you say that because one of the things I've been discussing with other people has been the application of what is valuable work. And um, and obviously this varies depending on your role, right? But when it comes to when it comes to sales, and let's 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 take new business sales as an example, there are various things that you can argue are equally important, right? Um, so you know, outbound activities or, or, or reaching out to new people um to generate sales and fill your pipeline is considered important but also, um, you know, constantly learning and reading about the industry or especially your buyer's industry, reading and learning about the news and what's going on so that you can start to see trends and formulate strong opinions, learning about your product, right? So that you sound professional, you sound knowledgeable and you build trust with the buyers. You know, all of these various things can be considered as equally important. And it can be sometimes very hard for people to, you know, prioritize and allocate more importance for one over the other and therefore it might be difficult for them to say well I'm most active during this time so that's what I'm going to spend my time doing how have you addressed such or have you addressed such considerations
1: with yourself and your team in the past and, and what have you found work that's an interesting one I can certainly speak from my own perspective you know that may or may not highlight any shortcomings I have as an individual, but you know certainly for me i've found that in order to be successful and perform at the highest standard consistently over many many years i have to have this sort of always on approach this always on mindset so you know i will take time to switch off and that's important you know but but i'll always be thinking about how i can improve myself my own performance you know, that comes through reading things and learning and being curious and inquisitive um, and then testing new things and app- applying that to, to what I do on a daily basis. Uh, but but for my for my teams, um, I would say I've always put a lot of um, focus and care into the enablement of, of my teams, whether that's the first line managers or or the reps themselves. You know, I think that's important because I want them to understand how to do their job most effectively. But at the end of the day, it's up to them whether they want to have the same mindset that I do. You know, I would encourage them to to have that because I do believe that's what's required in order to be, uh, uh, you know, most successful in in sales. I don't think I've met someone that's, you know, highly successful in sales that doesn't have that always on approach, certainly in enterprise software and services sales.
0: How have you helped them? Or have you encouraged them to apportion their time in the right way? Because obviously you, you will look at their performance and naturally you want to, you know, if there are issues with that, you want to dig into why that's happening And, and sometimes that could be because they're not placing enough time on the right things or, for example, you know, in their conversations, the quality of those conversations aren't up to standard because they probably lack knowledge or, or lack skill set or practice in a certain area. So, how have you helped them decide where should they where they should spend their time and on what activities?
1: Yeah, so that that's an interesting one, especially given certainly a topic I know you and I have touched on in the past around uh, buyer behaviours and how our how our world has changed, and so you know, I think it's, it's very easy to be busy for the sake of being busy. I've done that in the past. Um, But it's, um, it's very difficult to identify uh, what those high impact behaviors are that you should spend most of your time doing. Because when you do them, you increase the chances of your success or the probability of your success. So I'll give you an example. There are sort of three or four different behaviours that we or that I as a sales leader have focused on quite heavily over the years, um, uh, linked directly to helping buyers uh, buy successfully buy the products and services that we sell successfully. And it's down to defining uh, what the problem is helping the buyer understand, you know, what that problem might be and define, what that purchase criteria should be. And if we can do that successfully in sales and align that to our strengths, you know, we're more likely to help that buyer successfully buy uh, the solution, the service, the next one. And there are really three of them. When I think about it, the next one is, is shaping an evaluation process that will help the buyer successfully tick off all the boxes they need to but also give us the opportunity to coach that buyer through any hoops that they need to to jump through as they as they kind of you know move the ball along within their peers within the organization that they need to get support from and then that leads on to the third which is helping them build consensus uh, effectively which is really difficult to do right you know we um we think it's difficult to sell it's even harder for our buyers to to buy what we're selling and so knowing uh what they need to do um and how best to convince their peers to support that purchase decision uh is is key for us to spend time on as sellers so i used to define those three things plus many more but if we keep it simple i used to define those three things and and build enablement and coaching around helping my sales team do those three things better.
0: So that was really interesting.
1: So if I've
0: captured that correctly, so the first one is, um, you know, understanding the problem, um, and the purchase criteria. The second one is shaping the evaluation process. And then the third one is helping build consensus effectively. Did I capture that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, that third one, I want to dig into that because that's only going to get worse, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and from my own research, um, and I I just sent out a, a, a first and a two-part series to my community around the trends, the buyer trends that we should be expecting in 2023. Yeah, um, sure. and And one of which is, you know it's it's only going to get more difficult for buyers right and for various reasons some of which there's a, there's a heightened sense of anxiety and fear out there at the moment not just in sales and buying but but in, in in the macroeconomic and the social structures at large and that's only going to make people more hesitant the acceptability of failure or the tolerance for failure is only getting lower and lower Uh, which means that buyers are more hesitant to make decisions that might be too far against the grain. They're going to have more people involved in in the decision-making process. Uh, I was just on a a deal with a client the other day. Well, not the other day, probably about two months ago. Uh, It was a £600,000 deal, but they had 37 stakeholders involved in the sale, in the buying process, right? Um, And so what you just said about buyers not really knowing how to buy is absolutely true, right? Some of them had training on buying, some of them haven't. Some of them have never purchased a product like this before. And therefore, Mm -hmm. it's new territory to them. And some of them, when you're working with diverse groups, have never really come together for something like this. And and some of them don't want to come together because it's extra work for no no extra pay. And and they don't want to make a scary decision where their career is going to be on the line for this. So why don't we break this down? I'm really intrigued to see, you know, to understand from you how kind of to best approach this. So, what are you, what is your anatomy for helping buyers in the in that consensus group come to an effective decision?
1: It's a great question. I think we could spend quite a bit on on this one. What what I what I found, um, and th- and there's kind of two parts to this. There's, you know, my experience and what we've done successfully as, as a team or i've done successfully with my teams before and then there's um how things are kind of evolving and what we need to do differently uh to be more successful at building consensus in the future given given the way things are going and so that first part and and around that purchase criteria that we touched on a moment ago there's there's kind of two elements within that one is is first finding and qualifying the individual that has the uh, uh the influence within the organization enough influence uh, within that organization to um, convince others and you know as you quite rightly said we're often faced with challenges like that individual hasn't bought a six hundred pound solution before You know, they've only recently joined the company. So how could they have influence and trust with peers enough to get them to sign off a cheque for £600,000? And so it's critical that we qualify that individual first and uh, or individuals um, around that pain point, that problem. And we help define what that purchase criteria looks like you know, and and once, you know, um, um, and as we're doing that, we are qualifying the the cost of doing nothing. Once they've accepted that, actually, this is a pain that I want to solve, you know, I I am willing to explore this further with you, we, you know, we then uh, start to link uh, the uh, unique capabilities of the solution that we're offering to to that purchase criteria if we haven't done that there is no foundation to build consensus with with the peers because they'll they'll all be thinking about their own agendas and so it's it's vital that that first step is is done in in my mind
0: so this is you know find and qualify the individual with the influence mm-hmm. to help them convince others and and i love that you said that because oftentimes in sales uh, we mistakenly think that we're the ones that have to do the convincing of everyone in that stakeholder group but actually when you think about it that makes no sense because they're not going to trust you as much as someone in their own camp yeah so what you should be using is using your champion right to to help to and get their commitment to convince others and kind of coaching them to do so so i thought that was really interesting you said that define the purchase criteria and qualify the cost of doing nothing. So, so we're kind of going into status quo territory here. And, and this is something that's been talked about for years. I talked about it recently, we just we just interviewed, um, I just interviewed Matt Dixon, who is an old mentor of mine for his new book, Jolt Effect. And he talks about status quo quite a bit in there. Talk to me about how should a salesperson who is biocentric address status quo and communicate the cost of doing nothing?
1: So I've had a certain way of, doing that uh, which you know is is directly linked to the martech industry so you know there's i think there are three or four um sort of key key components um and actually before i get to those three or four key components um you know you talk about matt matt dixon you know, i'm thinking brett brent adamson and um you know challenger you know uh, that's you know that approach is something that I found incredibly valuable for me in my career. Certainly as an individual contributor, because I found that it helped me put names on things that I was already doing, but also take me to uh, kind of take me to the next level. The cost of doing nothing, you know, you you can start that conversation by creating commercial insight. Right, that's a term that's used by Challenger where you're packaging up information that will help that person, that individual understand um, the commercial value of solving the pain that you've identified, but also the cost, potential cost of doing nothing um, and the effects on them and the organization. So, you know, if you can build out that commercial insight and it's compelling, fantastic. Um, In order to actually quantify the cost of doing nothing, though, it's those three or four elements that I was touching on. And so, you know, it's key to understand what what is the differentiating commercial value that you provide to your customers. If you you don't understand that, you're never gonna help your potential customer uh, understand that. Um, And if you can calculate that, you can then calculate the cost of doing nothing. And so, you know, understanding what you know what the uh, the impact is that you deliver. Number one, understanding what that path to value is. So, you know, what are the things that you need to do from a marketing perspective? Given that I've been selling MarTech for years, what are the things that you need to do on that path to value that will actually help you realize the value? But what is that value? how how much money are you going to make by doing those things those achieving those milestones walking those steps and then what what are the strategic levers and the benchmarks that you can you can assign to those strategic levers and the strategic levers are really the things that you do as a marketer to accelerate your your path to value how quickly you can reach uh or walk that path Um, but but at the same time how much you can increase the sophistication of what you're doing at the same time and and if you from a from from a marketing perspective it usually comes down to a few things you know the data sources and how how deep those data sets are and the integrations that you can create because by doing that you can then improve the depth of personalization in those marketing communications and, and that is the biggest uh, that has the biggest impact on on revenue generation. So if we understand those benchmarks, we can then quantify what the what the uplift is by pulling those strategic levers and then we link that to the capabilities that exist within your platform or the services that you offer to build confidence on the or within the commercial value that you will drive over time. Now, if we model that, then we understand how much money you uh, you are set to, to to make, or how much money you're you're not going to make. The cost of doing nothing in in this in this case, and there's other things we can build into that in terms of the resources and the time.
0: I feel like we're we're scratching the not scratching, so but we're talking now about you know how you helped your sales teams become more buy-in centric and therefore quadruple the average order value and I'm going to ask that question in a moment but in relation to what you said about quantifying the impact right Um, and it's something that I think you know is one of the things that separates high performers from average performers or low performers is their ability to not only quantify it right? But to also do so confidently and communicate it in a way that they truly believe that that is the right number. And even if it's not the right number, you know, we're, we're going to get to that right number, right? How should all that should all that data come from you? Or are there other sources that can help you quantify the impact uh, and the value for a buyer?
1: When you say come from me, what, yeah. what do you mean? So. Yeah, so,
0: so a lot of that may come a good question. So a lot of that may come from you, the supplier, the vendor, right, your own analysis of, uh, you know, the impact of, of you know, doing nothing, or, or even taking another solution, right. Um, and I'm just, I'm just wondering, where do you get the data, you talked about benchmarks, you talked about specifically mm-hmm. path of value and impact to delivery. Is, is that information mainly from you, the supplier, or are there other sources that you can... Because I'm just trying to give salespeople here some, some practical uh, ideas and methods for them to be able to take this to their own business. Yeah. And one of the big questions I get is, um, you know, not big questions, but one of the questions I get is, how can I go about starting to quantify this? Because it's quite difficult for me to do so on my own. Um. So should they get that from their from their company, from the people in their businesses that can help them do that, or their other sources of information that can help them um, understand the quantification and therefore deliver it with more confidence.
1: Depends which bit, um, you know, which, which bit and, and where you are in the process. So the commercial insight that I spoke about earlier, anyone can create that if they know how. It's not necessarily easy to do, but in the in the simplest form, you can pull together um, two or three pieces of information that kind of build out the beginnings of commercial insight that you can use to then sort of teach your your potential buyer a new perspective, but at the same time qualify whether or not they have the influence to to drive uh, drive the uh, the purchase uh, process forward. And I you know I found quite simply, you know if we if we have um, an industry known problem, right? So we know it's a problem for everyone, that we just don't know how much yet, because we haven't yet spoken to them. But a really good example, certainly for marketers, is testing and optimization. It's a problem for everyone, because um, it requires effort to do it successfully. And, and so you're quite safe leading with, with that one. So by bringing in... Um, a case study that you might have or some independent research. Um, it's probably a bit old now, but um, you know, for testing and optimization, Forrester used to talk about the fact that um, nine out of 10 marketers don't test consistently. There's only one in 10 marketers that test consistently. and those that do see a 25 percent increase in top line revenue growth the reason the other nine don't is because it's really difficult to do now technologies have moved on ai is is prevalent Um, your testing is becoming easier it still doesn't mean that marketers are good at it but you can bring that insight into the commercial insight link it to a case study where you've helped a client do testing effectively Um, And then use that to have a conversation about uh, testing and optimization to qualify how much of a problem it is. And in in its simplest form, you know, you could quite quickly get to a point where you've identified that that individual is losing 25 percent of revenue (laughs) Um, um, that you then form as the basis of the discussion going forward. But, you know, as you get deeper into the process and you're shaping the evaluation and, you, and you're and wanting to build consensus with people that want more than just a conversation, you know, let's say the, the finance director or the CFO, for example, you have to build that out. And I think that that is a process that, that, um, that I always took on as a sales leader, an indiv- a sales rep as an individual, but also as a leader to enable my teams to teach them how to successfully quantify the differentiating commercial value of the solution that we were providing so that we could get to a point where we could create versions of you know we could tailor the approach depending on who the buyer or the 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 coach or the champion whoever you want to call it needs to convince and so this is interesting because
0: i promise listeners and viewers that we're going to dig into how you were able to um quadruple average order value within just 12 months. It's all linked. It's all exactly. It's all linked. And I, I want to give them that structure. So so why one why don't we dig into that? Because the mechanism by which you did that was to help the salespeople become more biocentric. What are the steps or what are the things that are critical to Helping a salesperson or a sales team become more biocentric. What are the things that they have to look into and do?
1: You know, and I know you're sort of talking about quad, the, the quadrupling of of average order value. There was a time when um, I led a new team uh, into a new region, uh, creating a new business unit uh, or extending an existing business unit into a new region where we um together generated a business that went from zero to 22 million dollars arr and several million dollars of services revenue within a four-year period um you know started with one and we had you know we were a team of 40 by the end of it so when i think about that uh, and that part in my career with with a with a responsibility that spanned sales marketing consulting to a certain degree uh customer success there was a lot of learnings in there that I took to the role where we then quadrupled average order value within our enterprise accounts and so there were really sort of two pillars uh two things that I focused focused on quite quite a lot thought about every single day one was community and so um uh you know even At this time you know seven seven years ago sort of three to seven years ago this notion of buyers kind of retracting into the into the zone of resistance and hiding from sellers was already happening which i know we talk about it a lot today but it started many many years ago and so i felt that if we were able to bring customers prospects and partners together in a in a safe environment where they were comfortable talking openly and we made a point of not selling at them but just connecting them that had such a positive effect on the amount of business that we generated uh, and so you know we worked quite hard at, at, at doing that with with a, with a relatively small uh, budget as well the the other thing is um enablement so you know not relying Because I was part of a big company then. So I didn't want to rely on our enablement team to do the enablement. I didn't want to rely on an external third party to do the enablement because a lot of the approach that I'm talking about today was coming from me and and my head based on what's worked in the past. And so, you know, it was key that I designed the enablement programme you know I, I was able to get the support to then enable the team effectively and provide that ongoing coaching that that you know sometimes daily coaching required to um to help our buyers successfully navigate that that you know purchase process so there
0: were two pillars the community and then the enablement and you kind of you talked about doing your own coaching how should sellers Or even sales leaders listening to start to create that for themselves so talk if you could maybe we start with the community part so how did you create a safe community for your buyers to to join and actively participate
1: yeah well it started off small so we we would organize dinners and the dinners would grow so that, you know, it, it went from a few of us having a dinner at a table in a, in, a, in, a, in a restaurant to moving to sort of private dining, you know, where we could get 15, 20, 25 people. Um, and, the mo- and the more people that were interested and that were, were coming along, um, we realized we needed to create something something bigger, but we wanted to maintain that sort of intimate kind of setting, if you like. So it, it sort of grew over time. By by the end of the fourth year, we were regularly getting 50, 60 people together and turning it into, you know, an exciting, you know, we started giving out prizes and awards and we would still have the, the dinners, but we, you know, we we weren't bothered about the fact that customers, prospects and partners were coming together, even partners that competed against each other. That, that wasn't. The reason why we were doing it, we were doing it because we wanted to just bring people together, and it just naturally grew into this 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 thing that that we hadn't expected at the time. And I I, I often use a phrase sell without selling. I used to use that a lot with my with my teams, and and that's kind of what we were doing. You know, just bring people together, and the fact that they build rapport, and um, and you're not selling at them. You're you're you know, they're getting to know you. You're building you're building trust now. That's harder to do now that we're all digital and a lot of teams are remote. And so, you know, that kind of leads on to what I think we need to be doing in the future, which is is, um, learning how to walk digital corridors effectively. Um, You know, social selling is a term that's been used a lot. And I think um, like anything, people have their own idea about, about it. Um, but I, I think it, it needs to be a methodology, a strategy that kind of overarches everything we do within sales so that we can we can take ownership of our personal brand. We can amplify that confidently. You know, we can consistently connect with people across all platforms, not just LinkedIn or digital platforms. And we can learn, you know, we, I think we need to learn how to write we know we need to learn how to create content that helps us achieve what we spend so much uh, time trying to achieve as salespeople which is earn trusted advisor status because only then can you have a real internet intellectual connection with your buyer and only then are you truly able to help coach them through that buying process and so how do you do that look like an expert on all of your digital uh uh assets linkedin twitter guild if you're using a networking platform or any other platform
0: that's interesting and 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 you talked about the the second pillar which was the enablement and you specifically talked about the coaching now coaching is something that i think there's enough data out there to say and show why it's important um unfortunately sales uh, sales managers, particularly front sales frontline sales managers for various reasons are not able to effectively coach people, some of which because actually they shouldn't have gone into the management role or or some are probably right for the management role, but they're not given the training and the tools and the guidance for how how to coach and how to structure it and what to do in the moment. Mm. Um, how have you approached coaching and, and and what advice can you give sales managers who are listening to us right now? about how to effectively conduct coaching, uh, and, and both on a strategic and a tactical level? I know this is a big topic, but if there's anything we can share with them, that would be great.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, what's worked for me is uh, coaching courses, going on coaching courses myself. Uh, mm. we, we all, you know, we all, ha- we all have bad habits, and we all have uh, pressures that affect our ability to coach effectively. Uh, you know, one of which is the pressure of doing business and forecasting. You know, that that's probably the biggest negative pressure on being able to coach uh, effectively. Um, and you know, that that's quite hard to do because you have to disconnect yourself from the pressure of forecasting and revenue and think about the individual. And, you know, I'm I can't say I'm I'm an expert coach, but I can say that. If if I had regular training around coaching and I, I spent the time speaking with one of my mentors or someone about how to coach effectively, the next conversation I had with my first line manager or rep, they would feel the positive effects of that. In fact, I remember one guy saying to me, have you just been on a, on a training course? Because <laughs> I was asking him questions that he really enjoyed answering. He didn't care the, about the fact that I'd been on the. well they actually did he he liked the fact I'd been on the on the training course so there's that there's also um you know when I think about you know enablement as a whole and improving average order value the the approach to coaching when I became a more senior leader was kind of twofold it's what's the coaching program for the for my sales directors versus what's the what's the coaching for 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 the you know the boots on the ground per se and how should my approach change with first line managers who then need to encourage or i need to encourage and motivate them to have more of a coaching stance with their with their teams
0: you obviously went on your own coaching coaching course so that you can become a better coach which is great And you obviously made the distinction between you know you're obviously going to be a different coaching program for your for your frontline managers versus your managers of managers let's say if you're a frontline manager because you did you did say before that sometimes you would have to coach every day now now that doesn't sound very sustainable for the long term so is there a particular structure for a coaching system that that you found work very effectively you know is it once a month is it once a week is it triggered by certain events what have you found work
1: yeah so what what worked most effectively is is when we designed the sales process to be more buyer centric so you know those three uh, milestones that i was talking about before we we mapped out what they were i think we had 5 and within each milestone we identified and understood uh, two types of behaviours. There was the customer behaviours and the sales rep behaviours. And this process whilst was geared towards um, uh, winning new business, it was set up in such a way that it, it, it took into account the path to value. So beyond contract signature, uh, it took into account the path to value uh, for cu- a customer being successful once they'd signed up as a customer. As a coach, um, it then became easier to coach reps against that those milestones and those behaviours, both from their perspective, um, in terms of what they need to be doing, what they're in control of, that increases their probability of success but equally what they need to then help their buyer do the behaviors their buyers need to follow that increase their probability of success. So a successful purchase of the solution. If you define that, it it then became far easier to to coach the reps. And that would be uh, weekly, I'd say as a minimum, with then, you know, any deal coaching, specific deal coaching That was required based on you know things not going the right way for example
0: yeah that's really interesting um i wish we had more time to to discuss this and obviously these are very these are very very big topics there were there were definitely some practical things that i think people can take away from this there are a couple of questions i I want to ask you and um uh, you know help people connect with you to learn more about your approach and learn more about how to become biocentric, particularly if they're in the MarTech world. Um, mm-hmm. So the first question I want to ask is three books, would you recommend that our viewers and listeners should absolutely read? Or you might say, actually, there are three people that, three people, experts, uh, you know, who, who our viewers and listeners should definitely follow and learn from. What would your recommendations be?
1: So firstly, the book, uh, and I'd say the book that helped me, um, in when times were most challenging uh it's called 4dx the four disciplines of execution it it looks at how you define your high impact activities and despite the whirlwind of chaos that we're in every single day you focus on those high impact activities because they're the things that will get you closer to your to your to your objective Uh, If you're familiar with the story of Sisyphus that kept pushing the rock up the hill time and time and time again, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over and over again uh, and expecting a different result just it's just a waste of time. So we often need to step back and think about what are those high impact activities that we need to be doing that will increase our probability of success and don't rely on yourself bring others into that conversation bring your leadership team into that into the conversation and that book um i bought the audio book i think this i think it's 20 hours 25 hours of audio i must have listened to a hundred times and i taught myself how to do that and uh, i'd i'd recommend that as one of the top books uh on my list challenger but the challenger customer so you touched on earlier about um, building consensus individually. I was a very successful solution seller years ago doing that. But but when the magic kind of starts to happen, when you when you're in more control of your success, it's when you're either in the room building consensus with the decision making unit, or you've successfully coached your, you know, the buyer to do that job in the room with that decision-making unit. So I recommend uh, the Challenger customer, Brent Adamson. Um, And then finally, uh, social selling. So, you know, I've now become a social selling uh, and influence coach, an expert, successfully doing that myself. I've grown my own business 122% in the last 12 months as a result of it. And so Tim Hughes, and he's he's just written a new book actually that's available for pre-order on Amazon, called Social Selling: Techniques to Influence Buyers and Change Makers. So I recommend people go out and, and and grab that book.
0: Yeah, those are some good recommendations. I hadn't read the 4DX or Social Selling actually. I think it's on my bookshelf, but I haven't gotten around to it. So thank you for sharing those. How can our viewers and listeners? connect with you learn more about you and get in touch
1: the socials so linkedin twitter uh whatsapp me call me uh all of my contact details are on linkedin in my contact section so i'd I'd love to chat to to anyone interested in in these topics
0: alex it's been a pleasure having you on uh on the show uh and great to talk to you about you know what made made you and your team successful when it came to becoming biocentric and and how you use that to actually increase average order value and increase success of your sales team so it's, it's been a pleasure having you on the show thank you for joining us
1: thank you for having me enjoy the rest of your week
0: great thank you and this is moeed signing out uh, if any of uh, viewers and listeners uh, on the show uh, are interested in the uh, the neuroscience and the psychology behind sales and especially behind uh, buying behaviors and the what and, and how and why people make decisions so that they can inform their sales process. And basically, if the bar on every metric related to sales, then please get in touch with me. Happy to discuss more about that. Links, uh, links in the show notes below. But until the next episode, thank you very much.